You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt, part of Kindling Kids Radio. You may have heard the story earlier this week about the teenager with autism spectrum disorder who died at a public swimming pool in Newcastle. It's a tragic story. He was at the pool with his carer when he started hitting himself. Six onlookers restrained him. He then went into cardiac arrest, was taken to hospital where he later died. Now, I can't imagine how his family feels or even those who tried to help him. And I also imagine having friends who have children on the spectrum that that's probably this probably story has probably alarmed them. We still don't know the full story. Police are investigating what happened. But at Kindling, we thought it's an opportunity to talk about swimming pools and those who are on the spectrum. Erica Gleason is an autism and behaviour specialist from Autism Swim. Hi, Erica. How are you? Hi, really well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Look, let's just start on, uh, I guess, a more positive note. This is a really obviously awful thing to happen, but swimming does have benefits for kids who are on the spectrum, doesn't it? Can you tell us why you think it's good for them? Um, There's a a whole plethora of research that supports swimming for ASD. Um, One of the most prominent is that water actually often um, alleviates a lot of their sensory challenges. So the moment the individuals with autism get in a body of water, um, they immediately feel alleviated from a lot of their sensory um, challenges. Um, there's lots and lots of research to come about from it. So not only does it um, does it work from a therapeutic um, standpoint, there's also a lot of other research that supports that it increases communication and a, and a whole range of other benefits as well. We've got those benefits listed on our website, which is autismswim.com.au, if people want to learn a little bit more about the specific benefits. Yeah. Okay. So we know that it's good for them. Of course, you know, he's just a teenage boy who was out for a swim. As a specialist working with people on the spectrum in the pool, what kinds of behaviours do you see? Because um, the general public might not be aware of how kids can react if they're on the spectrum. I know there's a very wide range of behaviours, but if you're able to tell us a few things that you might see commonly. Yeah, and sure, I I think that uh, it's it's not specific to the pool environment as well. These are behaviours we're likely to see in any environment, Um, but the most common ones that we see um, are meltdowns or sort of outburst behaviours they're referred to, physical aggression, uh, self-injurious behaviour, which is the example we saw in this case where um, the young gentleman was sort of thrashing his head against the, the edge of the pool. That would be referred to as self-injury. Uh, non-cooperation, there's pica, which is the eating of non-edible objects, fecal smearing, um, spitting, screaming. The list is pretty well endless when it comes to behaviours. And the thing about all of those things you mentioned, it's very confronting for... I imagine it'd be confronting for you, Erica, and you work in this field every day. Um, How do you deal with those behaviours? Because, of course, the child can't help them, Mm. but it can be very confronting for you, especially if you're not familiar that these are are just behaviours that come as being part of the autism spectrum. Yeah, I think um, for anybody it can be quite confronting. One thing that I've I've developed is a really good understanding of of risk. So what somebody else might consider high risk is probably quite different to what I would consider high risk. Um, We obviously, as as clinicians, need to do a lot of um, self-support because obviously you go home and you think about it and and you're quite distressed by the things that you see on a day-to-day basis. But 
as you said, the individuals can't help what they're doing. So that's something that we constantly need to remind ourselves of and um, be really sympathetic to, to their situation and the family situation and basically just do all that we can to support them. Ultimately, what we're here to do is is stop those behaviours occurring. That's our job. So um, as long as we remain on that pursuit, then um, you know it makes the days a little bit easier to deal with. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm speaking with Erica Gleeson, who is an autism and behaviour specialist from Autism Swim. Erica does spend her days... Um, help, helping to teach young people on the spectrum um, how to swim. And we're talking to Erica after this really awful story about a young man who was who's basically died after an, an incident at a pool. There's still a lot of investigation happening. We don't know exactly what happened. But for the, what we do know is that he was potentially hurting himself and onlookers tried to help him in that situation Erica, just as an outsider looking in, obviously not being there and seeing what happened, having six onlookers restrain a teenage boy who's 17 who could could have been quite large, could have been quite violent, is that the way um, as a clinician you would approach that? Because obviously not every pool has people with your expertise in it. No, and look, it's... um I can understand why people would have um, supported him in that way because um, they probably did it from a genuine point of concern um, and were trying to stop him self-injuring. We would never, ever recommend restraining somebody. So um, uh, unless it's deemed absolutely necessary because of the guidelines that are put in place, there's very specific training that needs to be undertaken if you're ever going to restrain somebody. Um, Not that it was was the case in this situation, but... um, when I hear things like this, I do worry um, about the risk of positional asphyxiation, uh, and that refers to someone's airways collapsing as a result of being restrained. It's far, far more common than people know, um, and it's, it's very seldom reported. So you see images in the media of someone being held on the floor on their front with a knee in their back to restrict movement, for example, and this is a prime example of someone being at an incredibly high risk of having their airways collapse. Um, as I said, this doesn't seem to be the case in, in this particular example. Um, however, that risk exists with any untrained restraints. Can I ask, in the case of someone that um, you say you would never recommend restraining someone for that reason, what do you say to someone if they see a person that's hurting themselves? I know that, for example, this is not perhaps a very good example, but if a child is having a really violent tantrum, you try to put them somewhere where they're not going to hurt themselves. You try to take things out of their space. I mean, is that the safer option if uh, someone on the spectrum is having that kind of violent reaction? And I'm also wondering if um, what is the danger to them, apart from asphyxiation, if they are restrained? Does it exacerbate their... um, the things that they're going through that are making themselves harm in the first place. Yes, yeah, so restraint will make the behaviour escalate further. That's based on many, many years of research. It's referred to as um, type 2 escalation. Um, so, yeah, you, you are best to get vulnerable people out of the way rather than the person themselves. That's always going to be an easier feet. Um, by the stage of, of them self-injuring, it's likely that they've lost all ability to rationalise and so they're probably not going to be processing the words that you're saying to them and the directions you're giving anyway. So what you can do is is look at modifying their environment for them rather than giving them directives. Um, you can try and reassure the person from a distance and, and try and bring their demeanour down. But um, in, in the example of last week, let's just say, for instance, that gentleman had 
um, some sensory challenges. And I think just based on of, on what I've read, he had an intellectual disability acquired from a, a brain injury a few years ago. I'm not quite sure if it was autism specific that he had. Um, however, if he did have sensory sensitivities, six people in your um, in your vicinity would be very, very challenging for him. See, that's already likely to escalate things further, is six people coming at you trying to restrict your movement. Um, what we also need to remember often is that um, anger isn't necessarily how we feel. So we often use an iceberg model to explain this in that we know with icebergs we see the tip of them, but quite often there are kilometres and kilometres of iceberg beneath the surface that we can't see. Uh, with a person beneath the surface, there may be feelings of resentment, embarrassment, guilt, nervousness, confusion, so on and so forth. Yet these emotions manifest as anger. Um, so sometimes if we approach a situation knowing that, our response might be a little bit different. We're no longer dealing with an angry person. We're just dealing with anger, per se. Um, and that model applies to all of us, not just those with a cognitive deficit. Um, in terms of your question about um, a, a tantrum or a, or a meltdown, I actually was speaking to a mother this week whose little son has, has major meltdowns, often when they're shopping, which is very difficult for her. Um, and one member of the public this week actually got down to the level of the child and screamed in the child's face <gasps> for him to shut up. Oh, my God. I know. It's, it's outrageous, right? Um, oh. So we need to remember that that's not a child choosing to be naughty and making a scene for the sake of it. It's it's a child who has a very limited capacity to, to cope and tolerate with stimuli that he finds aversive. And how is yelling in a kid's face ever going to achieve I, anything? I was in it? shock when I heard it. I know. I just blew uh, my mind. Um, so I was speaking to the mum about strategies and, and how to mm. cope with that. But I also asked her what she would like members of the public to do in that yep. in that. Um, Situation, And she said that simply a reassuring smile that she's doing a good job and, and that it's going to be okay would go a really long way. Yeah. She said she seldom receives that, but when she does, she just feels like breaking down in tears because it's just that little bit oh, of reassurance. Oh, that is heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it really is. What um, is it that people don't understand? I mean, I, I we're talking now about a, a situation that escalated into something that was, is the worst case scenario for anyone with this young man dying. Um, but do you find that there's a, a general ignorance around these sorts of behaviours when it comes to people who do have a cognitive impairment, whether it's being on the spectrum or not? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're aiming to help them in the pool, but is it just that generally we need to educate people better in terms of what's happening when someone's going through this yeah, stuff? Yeah, precisely. And, and something that sort of grinds my gears a little bit is when people... Um, say that they were being naughty or misbehaving, and it's it's a completely different world to that. Um, you know, self injury, physical aggression, and other behaviours are are really quite common in individuals with cognitive deficit, and it all stems back to their brain activity. So, I don't want to overwhelm people with clinical jargon, but some examples of that are you know an enlarged amygdala, which is likely to be responsible for intense emotional outbursts, or Overactivity in the anterior cingulate cortex, which can be related to behaviour and emotional outbursts. So the reason I sort of mention those words is that it gives people a little bit of context of the complexities that are taking place in somebody's brain rather than them just deciding to be naughty and, and, and purposefully annoy someone. So there is this huge overarching gap um, in terms of psychoeducation, which is why we work with so many people trying to fill that 
gap at the moment. We're working with quite a few lifeguards um, in terms of that because, for instance, they're trying to tell people to get in the fl- in between the flags, but the person that they're telling may have autism or a cognitive deficit, and they're not registering that. So the the lifeguard will you know, become quite stern, maybe get the whistle <laughs> out, get the megaphone out, and and now the person's distressed because they're overwhelmed by that. And so, they're in the water, which can't be a good combination. Yeah, so, you know, that, that psychoeducation surrounding disability to to sort of normalise and, and increase understanding of it is is really paramount to the work that, that we're trying to do. And when you say lifeguards, are you working with lifeguards, um, surf lifesavers, or are you also working with pools because I know that as you mentioned that what happened with this young man could happen anywhere Mm. Um, but then thinking again about pools in particular they've often got hard surfaces there's lots of children and people running around there's bodies of water that people might be worried about further injury like drowning happening Mm. do we need to be at a point now where it's just mandatory that all pool staff are trained in awareness of these issues yeah, uh, uh, sure. If we had our way, that's that's the way that it would it would work. Um, but as I said, it's it's sort of not specific to the pool environment. If you think about the beach, for instance, and we look at sensory seven, sensitivities alone, we've got the sand, we've got the the crashing of the waves, we've got the glare of the sun, um, salt in the air. You know, so any environment you choose. Um, you can sort of pick apart what needs to take place in that environment. So I know Coles, for instance, have just started an initiative in South Australia where they're doing autism-friendly shopping hour. I love and I that. Th- yeah, isn't it amazing? And I think that's a snowball effect. So we're actually putting a guide together now for organisations that want to be more um, disability inclusive. Um, we'll probably be releasing that next week. But yeah, I do think it's going to be a bit of a snowball effect because it's inevitable that we need to keep up with that. And, and members of the public are crying out for help. And quite often the way they're responding to things makes things worse. And mm. it always stems back to them probably wanting to do the right thing, but not having any understanding of of how to do that. Well, Erica, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. That's Erica Gleeson. She's an autism and behaviour specialist from Autism Swim, and they've got lots of great resources like Erica just mentioned, including a great list about why swimming is great for children who are on the spectrum. Just head to our website. We'll pop links up there. It's kindling.com.au. You've been listening to a Kindling Conversation podcast. We'd like to reach as many parents as possible, and you can help us by giving us a review wherever you downloaded this episode. It means that more people can find us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.